to Naked Podcaster. This is Stripping with my daughters who are recording this early and both tired. This is Alana and Kezia. Alana and Kezia, how are you? Good, how are you? (laughs) So Alana, (laughs) you're older. That's the only reason I'm starting with you. Tell me how old you are. 22. 22. And Kezia, you are? 18. 18. Right. So neither one of you lives at home. And I'm going to make another comment just because people ask and if this makes a difference. I think there's a curiosity. Alana, I gave birth to you. You are a biological child. Kezia, I adopted you. And I was at the hospital when you were born. So it was, I was there waiting. Your mom had a C-section. I was waiting outside the surgery room to be able to see you and touch you and hold you. And we knew about you being born. I knew about you from when your biological mom was 16 to 18 weeks pregnant and uh, was part of the pregnancy and then there when you were born. So just from an outside, an outsider's perspective, I know one of the questions I would get is like, if you were adopted or biological and at what age, and both of you were birth, but one adopted and one biological. So today on Stripping With My Daughters, we're talking about suicide. <sighs> So the first thing I want to ask you um, is how many suicide attempts did you have, La? I never kept track. But you had multiple suicide attempts. Yes. Okay. And what ages were your attempts between, like, twelve uh, to six? Fifth grade until June, summer before senior year. So like eleven years old to seventeen. Yeah, pretty much. And then, Kezi, what about you? How many attempts did you have? I had one. And you were Um, 15? 15. That was my freshman year um, in November. Okay. So the beginning of your freshman year of high school at 15 years old. I might have been 16. No, because you turned 16 sophomore year. Yeah, Yeah, so I was 15. Okay. 15. So one attempt. So slightly different things. Now, you guys do not have to talk about why I want to protect other people in this conversation. So if there's a situation or a person or something that really triggered you to want to be suicidal, I want to go into where your headspace was, but you don't have to talk about any person. And I prefer not to just because that person has their own story and they're not here to defend themselves. So if, uh, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I want you guys to start telling me about the headspace you were in because there's always a story before the suicide attempt. You don't wake up one day and be like, today looks like a good day to kill myself. You know, like you're in a headspace before that. So tell me where you were at before the suicide attempts? Before the suicide attempts, like I was just trying to be a kid, but like all the kids at school, some of the siblings, like everyone's constantly like, you don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be alive. Everyone hates you. Like kids at school would tell me to kill myself. And one of the kids went so far as to bring a gun to school with the intent to shoot me and he didn't bring ammo and I was sick that day but like that just kind of made it seem like there was no reason for me to be alive 
I know a lot of you've come on the show before and we've talked a lot about yeah. bullying. That was one of our conversations was bullying and that was a huge thing for you, but you also kind of felt it within family. And I know on that episode, we talked a little bit about how much was that really other people in the family or how much was it your viewpoint of people in the family and how they felt and what they want. And those are two different stories, but you right. felt, you felt encouraged to not be here and whether it was family or not family, you felt bullied. Correct. Is that a good? Yeah. Cause it wasn't just at home. It was everywhere. And you felt bullied and encouraged to kill yourself by people. And so that is that what planted the seed for you? And you're, you were dealing with a lot of self-esteem issues at that time too. Yeah, everyone was telling me I should kill myself. I didn't really have any friends. Most of my siblings at the time, we didn't really talk, especially not in public unless we were out as a family. Right. Now as a parent, um, I didn't see that. No. Well, everyone knew me and Alana hated each other way back when. Well, yeah, that one was blatantly <laughs> obvious. I mean, we, a, we hugged for the first time my sophomore year in high school. So, I mean. It's interesting as a parent because I know that person, and we had a huge family, but some personalities don't, there's more friction. But that's not unusual. And that in and of itself is not a big deal from a parent, from a parent's perspective, unless it's brought to my attention and we have conversations about it and both of you talk about it. So friction between siblings is no big deal, generally. Um, Kezia, what about you? What was your headspace before your suicide attempt? See, I knew, I guess what came became more apparent for me is when I started learning about like depression and stuff like that. Um, and I knew when I learned about it that I had it even before I knew what it was. So mine started way back in kindergarten when right after um, dad had gotten out of prison. Um, and I kind of, it was the same thing. I felt really bullied in school and out of school. Um, and it wasn't necessarily encouraged. I just kind of felt like my self-worth was depleting and um, people didn't really care about the well-being of me, let alone the other people surrounding them. Um, I think the, the most intense I felt was seventh grade the only friend I had in school was, or who I thought I could actually depend on was my school counselor, um, which obviously wasn't the, the best friend that you could possibly imagine. But I mean, he was there more than my actual friends were, or friends, whatever, but. Um, I think that that's actually a really healthy, great thing that when you don't have a lot of friends and you feel left out, or you feel bullied, or you feel like you don't fit in, I think, I mean, I've always told you guys that I want you to talk to me, but it doesn't have to be me. Like I'm, I have always tried to be super open to talk to you guys about anything, but if you find someone else to talk about, that is, I, that does not hurt my feelings. It's more about you having someone than not. And so that was actually a really great relationship, I felt like for you, Kez. And I knew about it at the time because you were actually- Oh, well, yeah, I know that. I, 
I know that you talked about. Yeah. You know, he didn't break your confidentiality, but there's a point where if you want to hurt yourself or others, or there's some things that are going on that are a bigger deal, like bullying hits a certain level. If there are issues at home, it starts to hits a certain level. By law, they have to discuss things. So he actually kept your confidence really well. Well, I know that seventh grade, I was a really big troublemaker. I remember getting in-house suspension every single day because my friend's encouragement on getting in trouble. Um, also, seventh grade was also, I know that Alana, I don't know if you want to bring this up, but I started self-harming in seventh grade. Yeah, no, that's and a that, great thing. Yes. That was introduced to me by family. Um, and it wasn't encouraged by family, but I had gotten told about it and I wanted to try it out. So I did. And I became very dependent on that all through seventh grade. So on to junior year in high school. I think the biggest thing for me is a lot of people thought that after my attempt, I was okay. There were a lot of nights where I still wrote my, my goodbyes. I, I have three notebooks filled with thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore or just explaining how tired I was of fighting for my life when I didn't even know what I was fighting for anymore. Um, and I think that's like the hardest part when it comes to, you know, trying to explain to someone the suicide prevention or depression or anxiety or anything like that is it doesn't it doesn't stop once once you seek help you you have to fight through that for years after everything happens yes alana you're saying yes you're nodding tell talk yeah, to yeah. me talk to me about what kezia just said about the um cutting self-harm and the period of time after even your last attempt well for me i found out about cutting from friends and TV shows. And like, I hated myself. I didn't want to be alive. I had like, the, there wasn't a lot of reasons keeping me going and keeping me here aside from I couldn't figure out how to successfully kill myself. So like I did start cutting and I did it on my legs. And I tried to never go deep enough to where it would leave a scar because I didn't want you to see it. So here's a and crazy side note. Go ahead. And what? I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. You're so good. I'm going to, I'm going to make a point. I was, I had done foster care for 12 years and then I was licensed as a trainer of trainers. So what that means is not only was I trained in suicide awareness, I was trained to teach. Uh, I had the highest level of training to teach other people and crisis prevention, um, conflict management, stress reduction, suicide awareness and prevention. I was trained and teaching classes. So, and I think, well, I know that I was a really good parent and I tried very hard every day. That doesn't mean I didn't make a shit ton of mistakes or nor was I even close to being perfect. I screwed up on a regular basis, but I tried really, really hard to do a good job. Even with all that, 
I had kids, at least two, that had suicide attempts in the house. And Alana, you had several. Well, and it may not have been happening in my house. Um, yeah. Kezia, you, your suicide attempt was at my house. Alana, where were yours? Mine were mostly at dad's house. Okay. Um, because your house was my safe place. Like, he w wasn't there. Okay. So. Um, and I felt like Kez did it at my house because it was her safe place. So you guys, is that right, Kezia? Yeah. Um, I actually, um, I didn't have the best relationship with dad. Me and him butt heads a lot. And I mean, it's, it's it, I butt heads with you more so now than I do dad. But I mean, at the time I did. So I kind of thought of your house more. Yeah, of a safe house. Um, yeah, so it's easy it's interesting because both of you felt like I was the safe place, but one of you did it away from me and one of you did it in front of me. So See, I much rather would have ha wanted you to find me than that. Why? If oh, see, that's a good point. I think, I think that, um, at the time, the biggest thing for me was I I was surrounded by people who, at times, obviously didn't make me feel the best, but also I knew who like they were gonna be there. I know that Dad did give us a lot of space to ourselves, and I kind of questioned if I did it there when I would be found, you know? Cause, cause obviously he did- Shared a room. Well, yeah, but I mean, I sleep a lot. And right, so how long would it take too. to find you? No, legitimately that's exactly. a good Well, like, they would probably find you. We just would think you're know, Right, and would ignore it until a certain amount of time went by. Also, I mean, as a parent of teenagers, I always go back and forth. You know, you vacillate between wanting to be super there and wanting to give you some space. And if you wanted to sleep, I wanted to let you sleep. I wouldn't have woken you up to just say hi. I would have given you that space. And so for me as a parent who's kind of, I was always trying really hard to be there and hang on and let you go at the same time. And it's very difficult to do that with teenagers. I mean, Kezia, you just went through your senior year. And that's why we butted heads more, right? I'm trying really hard to guide you and direct you and be there for you and let you go at the same time. And it's so freaking hard as a parent to do both things. And you've both gone through me doing that. There's not a right way. And I probably did it differently for both of you because you're different personalities. Like how the hell do I do that well? And there's gonna be conflict because all you want is to have your independence. And I'm not hanging on because I'm like, I want you to stay little and small. And I'm hanging on because I want you to make less mistakes and, and maintain a good relationship into you becoming an adult. And some of that is a little tough love. And that's very, I'm not, I'm not as much a tough love parent as I am a, like, let's talk about it and come to an agreement and, and, you know, when you're a teenager, you're kind of an asshole. There's no conversation. I know about I was an asshole. I know for a fact I was an asshole because I tried to be an asshole. <laughs> Whether you're trying or not, it's a natural progression. I'm not putting you down. A teenager being an asshole, I'm not putting you down for doing that. You're really trying to figure out your path. And I'm trying really hard to help you find it and stay on it and make less mistakes. And so I don't tend to be a tough love parent at all. So, okay. 
So you're going through all that and I'm trying to give you space. So you're right. I would have found you faster and easier at my house because I was more engaged. And that doesn't make us better parents or worse parents. Dad and I were very different parents. And so again, that's just a, that's just one of those things. So <clears throat> what were your suicide attempts? How were you trying to kill yourself? La? Because you were like well, 11 when you started. So of course, I'm In glad. 11, I was going based off of like TV shows, which some of them aren't super realistic. Right. Um, so like at dad's house, we had, Kezia, you might remember this because you and Ashley found me. We had these mesh laundry bags at dad's. We made and fun of Alana for it. We, I they didn't know it was a suicide and... attempt. So, so I knew if you stayed hanging upside down for a certain amount of time, you would eventually pass out and die. So I put myself in this mesh laundry bag so I could still breathe and tied it on one end of my bed. And I was on the top bunk. And so I hung in front of Kezia's bed, upside down in a mesh laundry bag, trying to get myself to pass out. Because me and I was, Ashley walked in I was too that. tall to do anything else. And Ashley and Kezia came in. They thought it was hilarious. They didn't know what I was doing. And they got me down. Okay. And then so time, you could say we saved your life. I mean, had that, now here's the other thing about suicide attempts and in all my training, a lot of times it's, well, I would have to say almost every time it's not that you want to die as much as you want to escape the pain you're feeling. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about is what was the pain you were feeling, the situation without naming names or anything like that. But you're trying to escape the pain you're feeling, but often like, that's a funny suicide attempt. It's not funny that you had a suicide attempt, how you were no. attempting to do it, like they made fun of you and it's kind of funny because your chances of actually dying in that situation are like slim to none. But yeah. often a suicide attempt is a massive cry for help if you know that that's what's going on. So for Kezia and Ashley, and like you were 11, so they were younger. Right. They were like nine and seven, right? Are you and Ash, Kez, are you and Ashley two years apart? Yes. You guys had to have been like nine and seven. Uh, yeah, because me and Gabby are two years apart. Right. Yeah. So like what a, a nine and seven year old are going to think you're doing some dumb trapeze thing. So there was no conversation about what was really going on, right? Yeah. So after that, what were your attempts after that? What, what did you try? I tried drinking bleach. I tried tying stuff around my neck and attaching it to my headboard because I knew I moved around a lot in my sleep and if I moved at all, it would tighten. Um, those were the nights where I, I wouldn't move at all in my sleep, which never happened. Like small stupid stuff like that because I didn't want it to be painful. Mm. I just didn't want to be alive. I didn't want to exist anymore. How much bleach did you drink? Enough to know it tastes awful, but not enough to kill me. Yeah. Okay, what were other attempts? Because I know you had several, there were several ways you tried. 
because when we had when when we had this conversation when we finally had this conversation and again it was not happening in my house and you weren't talking at all um I didn't realize you were suicidal. I realized that you were struggling a lot, but not to that level. And uh, I mean, I was trained to recognize that stuff and you were not screaming anything at me, but I think you were different at my house than you were where you were trying to commit suicide. So what other ways? Yeah. If I was your safe house and we had a, I mean, I think we had a good relationship when you were Mm -hmm. growing up. Okay. So I wasn't seeing those signs. Um, No. And even if I showed them at your house, because I was around you so much and like, especially when I got older and the attempts became more serious and could actually kill me. Like I was with you at the, where you worked with the foster parents and stuff. So like I would read the stuff that you would teach them. So like I knew what signs to look for for suicide, but because I know what signs to look for, I know what signs to hide. Yeah. So it became a, oh, if I ever decide to do it at mom's house, don't do that, that, or that. Got it. Okay. So what were your other attempts like? What were you doing? Um, By the time I figured out what hanging was and like how it worked, I was too tall. From your bed? Yeah, from my bed because the closet was lower than the bed. Right. Like even from the top rung, like to get the it was a bathrobe tie thing to get it long enough to fit over my head it had to be so big so it just the height never lined up um i did try jumping out of the window uh, I, I was intending to land on my head it didn't go as planned so was so you jumped out of a second story window yeah. The Dr. Seuss uh, tree. Yeah. I took out the screen, jumped out of the window. That's, while I was yeah. Home. And uh, what, what happened? The, we called it the Dr. Seuss tree because it looked like a Dr. Seuss tree. Uh, my pant leg got caught on it. And so I just kind of slid down harmlessly and then rolled on the grass. Okay. At what point did you get frustrated that this was not working well? <laughs> right around the bleach, which was like seventh, eighth grade. And that okay. was also when I started cutting. So then when I, an attempt would fail, I'd just bring out a knife. I want to address cutting real quick because as someone who's been trained a lot, I never put, I never got, when I knew you guys were doing it, I never got super upset about it because it's not attached necessarily to suicide. Cutting doesn't mean you're suicidal, just like depression doesn't mean you're suicidal. It can go together, but not always. Cutting is more a way to physically release the pain that you're feeling emotionally. Go ahead, Kez. So the biggest thing for me for cutting is it gives me more of a physical pain rather than an emotional one. Correct. So cutting, for me relieved that emotional pain because I was putting it into physical pain, which also after a while stopped hurting Mm. because I was just so used to it. Yeah. So it, it, for me, it just numbed, it numbed the pain that I was trying to cover up by cutting. 
And the, you're in control of the pain, so you can control yes. how much and what and so when. That's where, why it was nice for me. Right, where emotional pain you can't as much control, where it doesn't feel like you can control it. So I had so much training in it. If I knew you were doing it, which I didn't always, you, here's the other thing. I mean, I've been married before, and it's astounding to me how close you can be to the person you're married or have a, think you have a good relationship or be close to your kids and how much you can hide living in the same house a tremendous amount. So I didn't often know that you were cutting, but when I did, it's more of a conversation of, do you want to talk about this? Do you need to go to therapy? Is there something I can do to help? Because the cutting in and of itself, I don't want you to do it. It doesn't make me happy that you're doing it, but it also, and I would ask you if you were suicidal, because is it connected and what can I do to help? But in and of itself, cutting never got me super, super uh, it's so hard to say. It's not that I wasn't worried and concerned. But you weren't it's, concerned about us losing our lives. I was more thankful that you, I didn't want you to have that outlet to release emotional pain, but I was thankful you had an outlet to remove, put, you know, emotional pain. I knew that you were in emotional pain and that I wanted to help you in a different way. But um, it's a really tough one because it's, it is really serious, but at the same time, it's not like the worst thing ever. And working with foster kids that came from really tough situations, it's very common. So maybe I was a little numb to it. Um, I also didn't always know you were doing it. And I also felt like I was offering you guys um, options to talk to me and options to have therapy and options to go with me to work where I was training on that stuff, to learn about it, to have to be more open about the conversations. I also knew some of what was going on in the background. By the time, let's see, Kezia, when you were in junior high school, that's when I knew some of what your story was. What was- Yeah, yeah, because I, I do remember my counselor reaching out to you and like talking about certain things, um, obviously. Right, and then, you know, I mean, you, you weren't the only one that had a counselor or a therapist that talked to me because we ended up having a group family meeting and things did move forward. And so there was an, there were, it was an outside situation that you guys didn't have control over. Um, and um, I, it's the moment I heard about it was the moment that I jumped in to, to try to help that situation. So, um, I'm going to write down what minute we're at. And then I'm going to say something. And if I, if I need to cut it out, I will. And if not, we'll just keep this rolling. Um, it was physical abuse from a family member. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it was physical, mental, emotional abuse from a family member. And when you guys came three out of, there were six of you involved at that time and three of you came forward and reported. And the day that that happened was the day that I absolutely became like mama bear and took over, but it had been well, happening I, for several years. Yeah. I remember, um, I was one, one of the three, the reporters, I was yeah. the, I was one of the first people to report it. And that was the hardest thing for me. And I didn't do it for myself. I did it for Sam. Um, and I did it for a lot of the kids who couldn't fight for themselves anymore. Um, and I remember talking to my counselor about it and he called you yeah. and the moment you heard about it, you pulled me out of school and brought me to the high school to talk with all the kids about it. Correct. And then because I remember, 
Yeah. There were three reports the same week. Three out of six of you came forward the same week. And it's interesting because you never talked to each other about it, but something must have shifted to make all of you report, three people report at the same time. And yes, the, the moment that I got phone calls, I was 150% all over it. So there are things that can be happening. I mean, especially when it's a family member and you don't, like for me, I don't realize that this family member is having a negative impact on you or that it, that has been happening for years. So as a mom, I felt like, how was I not seeing the signs? Why did you guys not tell me sooner? Were you trying to tell me in different ways and I wasn't hearing it? Um, it's a super hard thing. And then of course, had I known about that sooner, I would have been more um, forward about asking about suicide attempts. Um, but I did get everybody into therapy immediately at that point. But a lot, like Alana, you'd already had several suicide attempts by then. Yeah. Actually, that had to have been, if Kezi was in seventh, you had to have been in 11th grade, right? That was that my junior year. Okay, so the same Because I was doing, I did online school that first semester because dad forced me to. Right, right, right. And then we went on a Thanksgiving trip with dad. Right, right. And that's where things, like that was a really bad trip. So that first like, half, because I know the reports were in February of that year, of your junior year and your seventh grade year, Kezia, right? The reports and the, the, the battle for me for you guys um, started in February. So that first semester of school for everybody in that year, that's when you started cutting Kezia? So things were, um, must have been building up to So that. I started cutting after it happened. Okay. I think it was really hard for me to lose that person in that way. Um, and for me, to an extent, it was harder for me losing them than to deal with it. So when I had found out and was educated on cutting, that's when I started. Okay. Be because it was really hard for me to lose that person. To go through that whole situation. And I had gotten you guys both into therapy. I'm just trying to create a timeline. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't look at family member. I, I mean, it's so, this is so hard because this, statistically abuse happens more from someone you know. So family member would be a high list. At the same time, you don't expect it to be happening. Like I don't ask, I don't go around asking people if they're getting abused or you know what I As, mean? I mean, especially in the environment that we grew up in and like were raised in, obviously it's not something that you would question. Nobody would no, question No, I never question it. So, no. so Kezia, now let's talk about your suicide attempt because Alana, you were real focused on hanging and loss of breath and kind of dying, falling asleep and dying, not waking up. That was sort of your MO, is that correct with everything that you were trying? Kind of. Pretty yeah. much. I mean, there was the bleach and there was um, a jumping out of the building. Until like middle school, they were all pretty, well, not harmless because I was still trying to kill myself, but they were more like, I just want to die peacefully and not exist anymore. And then you went but into then, hanging yourself more assertively. Yeah. And then by the time I was like, when I got older and like had essentially done more research, like I yeah. was looking at other options. So actually I'm gonna finish this 
thought, your last suicide attempt we talked about in one of our other meetings, um, because I didn't know this actually, your last attempt that you were planning was at my house. Yes. And by then you had gotten very smart about the how, like you said, you'd researched how to do it well enough mm -hmm. that you were probably, I would say your chances of having been successful that time were pretty high. So why my house and what was the attempt and what stopped you? So this was after you and Jane started dating, right? We were already and living like, together, we had all right? already living together and blended. Chaven was four. Right. So this was six and a half years ago. Yes. Okay. So I was at your house. Things, it was getting late. At that point, I had already picked like exactly how I wanted to die. I wanted a white dress. I wanted it to be on the first snow of the year. I was like, I had a spot marked on the roof because I had done the math, like with my height, if I were to fall backwards, how high would I have to be to land on my neck? So I had a spot marked on the roof with a little piece of tape and like I was going to wait till it snowed. I was going to wear a white dress for the, because I, I thought the red on white would be very poetic because that was when I was like a little theater nerd. And um, like I picked your place because it was the safe place, but I ended up doing it a lot sooner. Like I, I had a knife and I was going to slit my throat and then fall back because I didn't want any chances of me living. And like I was on the roof standing heels to the edge of the roof with a knife, like holding it against my throat in a spot where the nosy neighbors couldn't snitch on me. Right. Which happened. Right. Yeah. And I like looked up and said, if there's absolutely any reason for me to live, you got 10 seconds to prove it. If there's anything out there. I'm like, that was like in the time when Chavin would pick someone and wouldn't go to bed until they cuddled her to sleep. And she had never picked me. We never spoke. We like didn't talk. But that night she picked me. So she was like, I had the bathroom window open from when I crawled out and I could hear her screaming for me to come and cuddle her and put her to sleep. So she was just running around the house yelling for Lala. And like, I looked up and said, that's cruel. And then crawled back into the bathroom, put the knife uh, in a stack of towels under the sink and then came out and was just like, I'm here to even let's cuddle. And I laid awake that entire night holding her. Like, after that, I decided I would be a good big sister to her. Because she she was sweet and innocent and was still a kid and hadn't seen any of that. Like, Abby, Dave, and Isaiah, like, they had already seen shit. Right. Like, in their own ways, through their own stories. Taven hadn't. Like, all she had experienced was her mom dying, which she was still too young to understand. So I, I wanted to essentially keep that innocence. But the only way to do that was to be there. And I knew me killing myself would make that worse. So was that like an instant shift where you knew you were done with suicide attempts? Kind of. Because that, like, I moved it earlier because my safe, pl my safe place got ruined. 
Like I started getting very nasty email, like not emails, but voicemails and text messages. Like they just destroyed me and it was at my safe place. So it didn't really feel safe anymore. So I didn't feel like there was a point in waiting. So at my house, you were getting messages about, and so that ruined my house for you, even though it wasn't about me. Well, at your place, like, I wouldn't talk to him. So it was safe because he wasn't present at all. Okay. And he ruined that by blowing up my phone with very negative text messages and voicemails. So in your mind, your safe space wasn't a safe anymore. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's why you felt comfortable doing it at my house and making sure you wanted it to be successful. And so basically your little sister of four years old, and it was such a great thing because she went from having, you know, three older siblings to freaking 11 living at the house. Right. And, um, and she had a hard time going to sleep because she, it was such a different environment. It was a huge transition for everybody, mm-hmm. but for a four-year-old, that's, it's a different type of huge transition. So I always love the fact that you guys wanted as, okay, so Kezi is eight years older than Taven. So you're 12 years older than Taven. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I mean, at 12 years older with that much of an age gap, you know, to, to even be the type of siblings that wanted to do that with her was so, that made me so happy that all of you guys were doing that and um, kind of bridging the gap for everyone, but it's what actually saved you. So now Kez, I want to talk about your suicide attempt. So you were at my house, you did it because you were safe. You did it because I would find you sooner. You wanted me to be the one to find you. So tell me how you planned it, what you did. So, for me, I don't, ex- I remember that night to an extent, um, we were all, it, 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 the parents had gone to bed, it was all of the kids hanging out, and I remember being left out of something, and I don't remember what, and I went to the bathroom, and I was crying, and Abby, that was when me and her were um, on better terms and we were pretty close she was sitting outside the bathroom door talking to me and I remember you used to keep the pills under the cabinet so I had done all of that in the bathroom beforehand and I had left the bathroom knowing how much I had taken and knowing that if I had fallen asleep that night I wouldn't be alive and The biggest thing for me was I wanted to make my last memory with the siblings as positive as possible. So I stayed and I hung out with them and I, you know, did what I needed to do. And um, there's one thing that I've only talked to Ashley about that happened that night. It was after we put Taven to bed because you guys had let her stay up a little bit later. Um, I was laying on the family room floor. and I was about to fall asleep. And I knew obviously that was, I, w- I was ready, you know, I was, I was slowly passing out. I wasn't really remembering the night. I was real dizzy. Um, so I was laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling. The room was spinning. I remember slowly, you know, hitting that point where I was like, okay, now is the time. Like, I'm ready. It's good to go. I 
know for a fact nobody was in that room because everyone had gone to bed and it was just me. I remember someone telling me to get up and that was like the weirdest shit in my entire life. Um, and I had talked to Ashley about it and she thought it was Christopher when I brought it up. Um, so it was really hard for me to understand that someone wanted me to stay because I remember someone yelling, like yelling at me to get up and telling me to get up because I needed to get up. And if I didn't get up, something bad would happen. So I got up and I went to my room and I just laid there crying and crying and crying and I cried myself to sleep. And I remember waking up that morning really disappointed in the fact that I did not succeed in ending my life. So I walked into your room and it, it uh, the hardest thing for me, it was, it was Gabby's birthday. And it was Gabby's so birthday that I, morning. Yeah. So I walked into, into mom's room and I remember cuddling her and I thought to myself, this is the last time I'm going to be able to do this with mom. So I told you I didn't feel good and I wanted to stay home from school. So you let me. So it was just me out in the house that, that morning. And I ended up in total taking like six bottles of pills that night and the morning after that. And I was in bed crying and Chris had gotten home from work and he asked me about it. I just said I didn't feel good. And then Gabby got home and I was shaking and I couldn't stop and I was crying. And that was when you had booked an appointment for me to go to urgent care and I didn't so, want to go. Wait a minute. I was at work and yes, I got text message. Dane was text messaging me saying there's something wrong with Kezia. You need to come home and bring her to the doctor. So I left work. I didn't know what was going on with you or why I just, I left work and you know, you book online the appointment with urgent care. Your stomach was in a lot of pain and you felt really sick, but you, it, I was thinking appendicitis. So because of your stomach and how much you were hurting and you were shaking. So anyway, I came home and I made the appointment. Yes. Yeah. And I, I remember I didn't want to go and I was talking to Gabby about it and I was like, you can't, like, you guys can't make me go. I don't want to go. Um, and that was when I had put all the bottles, empty bottles in my nightstand and Gabby had found them. And that was when she walked in and she goes, I'm going to urgent care with you guys. And I said and that was fine because you guys as siblings, yeah. you, all, you always have helped each other. I mean, you always get along with different people, you know, but you guys always helped and supported each other. So it was, I didn't yeah. think anything of it. And I didn't want to go and she made me go. And when we got there, I knew what was going to happen. And the doctor had asked you to leave and well, I wait. told her what was going on First, and it was really, can I jump in here? I was in the room Yeah. and she was asking yeah. you questions. I was in the room and she was saying, have you used a tampon? And I'm thinking, okay, she's asking you about toxic shock syndrome, which would give you abdominal pain. She's asking you what you ate. And I looked at you and I said, I think there's something going on that, and I really, really hope I'm wrong. But if I'm right, you need to say something. And Gabby said, mom, will you step out of the room? And I did. And I knew at that moment it was a suicide attempt. So I was putting it together that day, 
But yeah. it wasn't until we were in the doctor's office and she was asking you all the questions to eliminate problems. And I was like, holy shit, this is a suicide attempt. And so I stepped out of the room and Gabby said, well, Gabby said, either you tell them or I'll tell them. And I said, do I need to step out of the room? And Gabby said, yes. And I did. And then I stepped back into the room. And of course, you, I, I already knew what was happening. Right. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I was going to say something, but I totally spaced out. Um, I, I do remember, you know, the doctor was kind of putting two and two together. And when you had stepped out, she goes, I know exactly what's going on. Um, what's going to happen is, is I'm going to call an ambulance and you're going to get taken to the hospital to take tests and, you know, to urinate and stuff like that. And I knew for a fact that with the amount of pills that I take and what I took, um, I took, so basically how I, how I picked it out is I picked the ones that said liver damage or, you know, if you take too many of these, you, it, the cause is death basically. And I knew that running tests and stuff like that, obviously something would show up and we had shown up at the hospital and I was clear, clean, nothing had happened to my body. And I thought that was almost impossible. And I guess to an extent, I did really think, you know, that person who I had talked to that night, who obviously wasn't there, I was seeing shit or hearing shit or whatever. Um, I felt like that was a sign for me to get my life together. Because obviously, I could have been way worse than I was. I had heard stories when I went to West Hills about this, the same things happening to the same people who took way less than me and ended up in a coma for a week. Like, and I was clear, nothing had happened to me. Well, you weren't um, clear. So I had to follow the ambulance by law. I have to call your dad anyway. So I called him to let him know. Um, I stepped out of the room. She said, this is what's going to happen. Opened the door, came back in the room. She said, that, I mean, like I already knew. So me leaving the room didn't mm -hmm. make any difference at all. Um, if it made it was you a comfort thing, it was a comfort thing, which is fine. So I had oh, I been... remember what I was going to say. Okay. Say it. I'm sorry. I, so I know that you didn't know that I was thinking that way until it had actually happened. Uh, the, the clearest conversation I've had with you about it was at your work. And we were talking about suicide because I, get, uh, I think one of your um, kids um, had talked to you about it and you had asked me, this was the first time you had asked me ever if I was suicidal. And um, I knew that if I told you no, you would have believed me. So I told you no. I and I many remember times. I was laying on the floor. Yeah. And I remember laying on the floor underneath your desk and you had asked me because we were talking about it. And I looked at you and I took a second and I said, no, you know, I don't think I would ever do that. And um, you, you obviously like you had believed me to an extent and I kind of thought to myself you know nobody's nobody's gonna realize what's what's going on until it actually happens and and that's kind of what happened is nobody really thought I was as bad as I was until my attempt right that's true and I asked you actually several times I tried to have open conversations with you whether it was you guys coming to work with me and seeing the training or like I tried to really make it 
an open way to have all of these conversations about bullying, about abuse, and still you can't, you can't make your kids talk about it and you can't uh, like not even just to me to anybody um bullying abuse like smoking drugs i can't make you guys talk to me about it or even talk to someone else about it i can't make that happen but i can i tried to create an environment that was very open about those conversations so i know i had talked about suicide with you guys lots of times and still you know, like I didn't know about Alana until after the fact and you got caught yeah. in the act. So this is actually, we transferred to the hospital and you weren't, your liver function was compromised, but not to the point that they had to. So there's levels of compromise. It wasn't clear, but there's another level where like they have to give you stuff and put you in ICU and you have to be treated for that liver the the liver function failing and you were just barely under that so all they what they had to do so it wasn't bad enough where they had to do all of this stuff to save your life or help your liver function but what they did was they were taking your blood like every hour to make sure that level was coming down and and not going Sorry. up and so yeah. you we were in the hospital we went to the hospital at between 4 and 6 p.m on that day when we got to the hospital right and i so um you don't know this um i remember obviously everyone visited they did their thing we all talked whatever right. um for me the biggest thing that i remember that night was it was like four in the morning and someone came in to talk to you and you thought i was yes. sleeping mm -hmm. i wasn't asleep i was awake that whole night um and someone came in and talked to you about what you were going to do after the fact when Correct. i got home um he asked if i was bipolar he was asking you a bunch of questions about um what was going on and and why i was feeling this way or why you thought i was feeling this way um and i remember you telling me you couldn't take care of me after the fact like you could not take me home and i at that moment felt very alone i think because i felt like you were gonna abandon me and and that was when you had decided to take me to west hills correct so you woke me up at like five in the morning um all my stuff was packed up and you drove me to west hills and i kind of had an idea and i remember we filled out the paperwork and they walked me to that back room where we did counseling. Um, and I don't remember his name, but he was my favorite person there. The like, he, yeah, he had, he was talking to you. Um, and I remember being in the room, he was talking to you outside the room. And I remember crying um, and talking to my counselor there and then i saw your head walk by the door and then there was like another window or something in that main hallway and i saw you walk past that and i just was so 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 lost and that whole time i was there i was like okay when i'm out of here it's done like i'm done i don't know how i'm gonna do it in here so i'm just gonna wait till i'm i'm out and i remember going through that process and being there for like a week and a half or something like that mm -hmm. and 
they made you feel worse than you actually did at home. So I spent that whole time feeling completely destroyed and just not wanting to be here and not wanting to deal with anyone there and stuff like that. And there were like kids who were having fun with it or whatever. And I, I kept to myself, sat in the corner by myself. I ate by myself. I talked to maybe one or two people and even then, you know, whatever. And, um, I remember the biggest reason on why I didn't have a second attempt, um, per se is the conversation me and you had on the way home. Because okay, so stop right there. Wait, stop right there. So I'm going to go back to the hospital. So okay. the person that came in at four in the morning was a social worker. And he said, do you feel comfortable taking her home? And I said, no, because I teach suicide awareness. And so statistically, and, th and this was what I told him. I know statistically that when there's a failed attempt and right, like we caught it, like, oh, Kez, you're going to be okay now. We caught the attempt, right? That's when most people relax. If you have a second attempt, it is almost 100% success, successful. And I had to work and Dane had to work and we have enough kids and family at the house. I knew I couldn't give you enough one-on-one -on -one that you needed from me. It would have been easy for you to have a second attempt. And I knew that when you had a second attempt, if you decided that, it, you, were, you were going to die. It was game over. It was like, I, and I could not prevent that. I knew by having you at home, I wasn't around enough to prevent that. I also have been good at, and this is a tough thing in parenting that I've been good at. So if you think about, you know, Nikki being autistic or anytime there's an issue, I think the biggest thing with parenting is finding resources. It does not bother me that you talk to your counselor instead of me or a therapist instead of me or somebody else instead of me. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I want you to talk and get help more than I care about whether or not it's me. Um, and I also have been very good at recognizing when I am not enough. And after your suicide attempt, when I knew and I knew what the statistics were, I knew as your mom, I was not enough. That's a very, very hard thing to admit when you look at your child and you want to be everything for them. And I have to say, nope, I know right now I'm not enough. She needs more than what I can give her or we wouldn't be here having this conversation. So sending you to a treatment facility for 10 days where they could watch you and talk to you and you had that moment. It wasn't us taking the deep breath like, oh, thank God. we. We caught the suicide. Now everything's going to be okay. That's when it's the least okay. The least that is the, that is the scariest point in suicide attempts is catching an attempt, having it not be successful and you having the opportunity to do it again. So I was, I was admitting that I wasn't enough as your mom to be able to take care of you. And at that point I had full custody or primary, but I, I almost full custody of you guys. You were at my house all the time. And I couldn't. And it's the same thing with like Nikki being autistic or any other situation you can think of in the past. When I've brought someone else on, it's because I'm admitting that I'm not enough. And that doesn't make me feel bad as a parent. It means that I'm finding a resource to add to me so that you get what you need because alone I can't do it. And that's why you went. It was because I knew statistically you would have a hundred percent chance of having a successful attempt in that next and the next couple of weeks is the most important. So 
I also know that when I was leaving, when I was dropping you off, you came out of that room and you were hysterically sobbing, like screaming, sobbing, and you had yourself wrapped around me. And that nurse, it's your favorite. I looked up at him. You're wrapped around me. Like, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I looked up at him and I said, it's time for you to take over. And he peeled you off of me and held you down. And I had to turn around and walk away. I have a lot of moments in parenting that are like the most difficult moments. And that was by far one of the most difficult. And I had not shed a tear through this whole thing until I got to my car in the parking lot. And I absolutely spent about 30 minutes fall. I couldn't drive because I completely fell apart because I had to do that. But that was me admitting that I wasn't enough and making sure that you had something in place that would interrupt the suicide process long enough so that maybe we could take that breath and, and interrupt the process. So now I picked you up 10 days later. I, I, we saw each other and we talked, but. So I've totally forgot about this, but one of the hardest things for me in West Hills was the phone calls. Ah, okay. I remember talking every single day on the phone with people. And I think that made me feel, I guess not necessarily like, more alone but I just didn't feel completely there and the visits so the hardest phone call that I had to swallow was Olivia right because in before Japan. she had left we were the closest she was the one person um who made my life feel worth living for before my attempt because she's the only person I talked to about anything um she kind of knew where I was at in life, not necessarily that I wanted to die, but to like, she knew to an extent what was going on. So she was there for me more than I, anyone else was that I felt. The, um, so dad had told her and I know that nobody had told me that Olivia was gonna be on the phone. So I had answered the phone call and it was Olivia and I just bawled. And they almost made me hang up with her because they don't allow phone calls that make you cry. Um, because they feel like it, it makes you feel worse. Um, so the hardest things during West Hills was being on the phone with Olivia because I knew I had not only let the family down, but I had also let Olivia down. And the easiest, the easiest thing for me was doing it when she was gone because that was when I felt the most alone. Um, right. And obviously we aren't as close anymore, but like at the time I didn't recognize how many people were actually there for me. I had only recognized the one person who had knew, known what I was going through and who had attempted to put in the effort to make me feel any, any more than, than what I was. Um, the the drive home that was the hardest thing after the fact was the drive home and and then talking to dad but the drive home i know that you you had talked to me and you said you know you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to talk about it um and i didn't feel comfortable bringing it up or or suddenly saying anything or anything like that um and i remember you were talking about your stepmom 
or something like that. And then um, your neighbor, our neighbor. Um, and you had looked at me and you were, you were bawling and you go, Kezia, if, if you had succeeded, I don't know what I would have done with myself. And I had realized then that if I had succeeded, not only my life would have been gone, but the people around me, their, their world would have stopped. Your world would have stopped. And I knew that if I had attempted again, my siblings wouldn't have gotten the parent that they had if I had not done any of that. I knew that if I had succeeded and, and, and you had found me, or if anyone had found me at that, at that um, they wouldn't have gotten the parent that they needed in order to get by in life and to do the things that they needed to do to succeed. Um, just because of that conversation we had in the car and you looking at me and saying that, I think it, it mentally destroyed me and made me feel like I didn't have a choice anymore and I, I needed I needed to stay and I needed to get through life in order in order to not only give myself the opportunity to have the parents that I needed, but also my siblings to have the parents that they needed. You too, Lana. Yeah, well I'm kind of different because I remember I think it was in middle school we had a conversation about suicide when I was at your work. And it was about like divorced parents and like if there's a suicide attempt at one house, it typically falls more on that parent. Which was also part of why I always did it at dad's house is because then he would get charged with neglect because everything happened at his house. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't want it to fall on you because you were the good parent. And I didn't. I didn't want parent I didn't want the kids to get taken away from you because that would oh. make things worse for them. But if they got taken away from dad, it would have been good for them. Especially the younger kids like Kezia and Sam. So like that was another reason I did almost every attempt at dad's house was because if I was successful, it was at dad's house. A kid a sibling probably would have been the one to find find me. Like me and Kezia always shared a room. Right. And I don't, I never took naps at that time. So if I was just asleep in my bed right after school, it would have been like, what are you doing? It's interesting so, because you don't actually get charged with neglect. I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily, we wouldn't have lost the other kids or anything. There is somewhat of an investigation afterwards, but generally we wouldn't have gotten charged or lost the other kids. It would have just been a really big deal. I want to touch base on one thing really quick. Kezia, your suicide attempt, this is 2020, was it in 2016? Um, it was my freshman year in high school, so that was like four years ago. November 7th actually marks four years. Four years. So okay, so four years ago. That's what I thought. You mentioned Christopher. Christopher is your brother. That was, yes. So that he went, was right after he went missing. He went missing August 6th of 2016. And we were pretty sure, you know, when you have a missing child, he was 23 at the time. When you have a missing child, you're pretty sure that you're waiting to find the body. So yeah. 
um, and we knew that there was probably foul play in there. And um, so he, Christopher had died already, but we didn't have that information yet. And then your suicide attempt was November. So when you said Christopher was yelling at you, that's your brother who has passed away. Well, it wasn't necessarily that I knew that it was my brother. Um, I had talked to Ashley about it when we had first started getting close right, and, and she had made a comment about how it could have been him because correct. of the timeline. Yeah. Yep. So yep. Um, we kind of put two and two and two together and I know, you know, out of anyone, Christopher would have, yep. would have wanted me to seek the help that I needed for that and wanted me to have get up. Um, so that was that was an interesting thing to think about was the fact that the timelines really did line up and obviously we didn't know if he was alive or not but you know if if you're missing for a certain amount of time you just kind of end up assuming that's well, um, that's most likely yeah and he was he, and he was yeah he, yeah um so when when we kind of put two together it kind of um yeah that's lined just an interesting and, side note yeah um i want to talk because we're hitting an hour and i want to talk about i had put all you guys in therapy because i because of the abuse from a family member um everybody was in therapy and doing things i want to talk about in the after you you know because you were real specific and lana you mentioned it also that just because the suicide attempts no longer happen you still have to go through years of healing. And so I want you to tell me what I did that was helpful. Cause Alana, I didn't know about your attempts because I did know about yours. Um, Cause I would have treated Alana, you would have been treated the same way had I been aware of it at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's very different for me as a parent to not know about it. I was doing, you know, as parents, when you're, when you're trying to be a really exceptional parent, you're trying to give your kids everything they need from you and from outside sources. So you were in therapy for a separate reason. What, what was done, not necessarily by me, but what was done that was the most helpful and what could have been done now that you're looking back? Cause this is all at least four years ago, four to six years ago, what could have been done that you think might've made more of a difference in the aftermath after? So for me, I, after the math, it's really important for me to make it very clear to other people to understand that after your suicide attempt, after you seek help, after you go to therapy, that's not when it stops. You're not automatically okay just because someone found you, just right. because it was caught in the act. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of people don't understand that, that it, you, you aren't okay after that. You aren't okay right. for years after that. Um, the biggest thing that helped me with you is, um, w was after the, after the fact, that's when, that's when me and you kind of got a lot closer and we communicated a lot better. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was communication between me and you and, um, understanding that I could be honest with you about certain situations. And that was when I came forward about me cutting because I had continued after I, I, I stopped I, it's not necessarily that I had stopped, but uh, I continued to do that all the way up to my senior year. I had continued most of my senior year, um, but I had been honest with you about cutting and I um, slowed down after that because of that. Um, 
so the biggest thing for for me and you was communication um and the fact that you made it very clear on your appearance in my life um and you made it very clear that you were there if i needed it okay um the okay what was the second question well i don't know it's just like what helped and and what would you have like yeah would you have added anything um okay so it was me being much more because i was in your face about suicide before that but that didn't make a difference but i was i was afterwards and now we were now we all we all knew what was going on there was no more what if it was yeah exactly and that and i I was just very i tried to be very supportive of you okay so what could we have done and you were going to therapy and I was super open and you guys have never like with anything. It's not that you're not going to get in trouble. If you call me drunk in the middle of the night, and I pick you up. It's that I would prefer that over the alternative. So I've always tried to be open. Like if something's going on, tell me I'll take care of it. And then we'll deal with consequences later. Are there going to be consequences? Yeah, well, likely yeah. there are, but, but I I'm there for you in the moment. And this was no different. So what could anything have been added to that? that would have potentially made it easier for you or better or? Um, honestly, for me, um, I know for a fact that it couldn't have been prevented no matter what anyone did because I was in that mindset. I knew and even like now if, if I had decided, I knew for a fact that it couldn't have been changed nothing that anybody did could have changed the fact that I attempted and I would have done it anyways. What about um, afterwards? Was there anything that could have uh, made the healing easier? Um, so therapy for me, it never necessarily worked until Janet happened. And even then, um, it wasn't really, I didn't talk to her about the attempt or anything that was going on, um, in my past life. Okay. Um, I t- talked to her about issues that were happening in the present. So she's the only person who I've ever been to therapist wise who helped. Um, and um, I think the biggest thing for me was siblings obviously give each other shit and obviously still continue to make things harder. Um, and I think the hardest thing for me was I had falling outs with people. Yeah. So obviously suicide is a sensitive thing and dealing with someone who had attempted is also a sensitive thing um so it was really hard for me because i felt like i was losing the people who i felt like should have been there the most um and should have helped me out the most after the fact um and I think if people were aware and had brought up the situation to me more so than pretending like it never happened, Mm. I would have been a lot better on healing and making myself better for other people and for myself um, to continue on uh, with my life and stuff like that. Because I remember coming home and it was I did not like being home that first couple of weeks because everyone had pretended like nothing had happened and I feel like I feel like if someone had brought it up and if you guys were sense I guess you guys were sensitive 
but you guys didn't talk about it and you guys acted like it didn't happen. I think if you guys had acted like it happened because it did um, and weren't as sensitive to me when I had gotten home in those first couple of weeks, I think I would have been better off mm-hmm. with that and I would have dealt with it a lot better because um, I needed that band-aid ripped off and you guys didn't do that. Well, I know I did, but no, I, you can't control anyone else. However, right. um, statistically and in all the studies, talking about it more is helpful. So with siblings and stuff, that's difficult because it's not like as a parent, I don't know how much they're talk- you guys are talking about it, but also I can't force them to be comfortable and talk about it. I also know that you have other siblings who have, like, I don't know about suicide attempts specifically, but I do know with cutting and stuff like that, I know there's, there's, I know some of your siblings have depression, anxiety, and cutting, and have had bad things happen to them. So sometimes I think people don't talk about it because one, they're afraid they're going to trigger you, which is not true. And two, because they're dealing with their own shit and they're uncomfortable with themselves, not as much with you, but you, as a parent navigating, that's very difficult, but I agree that talking about it more is helpful. So that's, that's true. Lana, what about you afterwards? What helped and what would you have liked to have added on? So what would have helped me in the long run was I didn't really have a place where I belonged. I didn't really have a friend group. There wasn't really any purpose for me. And like, I tried to find stuff with like swimming, cross country, track, theater. But every time I would try to do one of those extracurricular things that would kind of force me into a friend group and like help me socialize more was it was encouraged on one side and strongly discouraged on the other. Okay. To the point where if I had to do it, I could tell you about it, but I had to lie to dad and say I was at a study group. Oh, So, okay. like, I, I was constantly discouraged from finding things that brought me joy and a place where I felt like I belonged. Because I, I didn't really feel like I had any friends or anyone that I was really leaving behind aside from, like, you and the few siblings I had a relationship with. So finding a niche would have been made things much better for you. You did try to though, and I did encourage that. Was any of that helpful or did you, you just oh, always yeah. felt torn and okay, it was helpful for you it to try was helpful, to find. But I still, I still felt torn because right. like dad encouraged some sports, but he, he encouraged the sports. School. He encouraged the Not sports that he wanted us to do. Okay. He, he yeah. had specific sports that he wanted us to do and he had lined up for us that we didn't want to do, but he wanted us to do. That's the like only he, sport that he, he encouraged. He tried to get me to do tennis because some of the other Mormon kids were doing it. Yeah. But like, right. I okay. didn't like tennis. Like, so I wanted to do theater. He wanted me to do soccer. Okay. So finding something like that niche, something that that is outside of family that's something yeah, that you something love a passion for. right a yeah. passion and building teammates and stuff like that would have been more helpful so i to end i want you guys to say for people out there and also because you mentioned so i grew up around people that suffered from a lot of depression my stepmom committed suicide and we were very close and that was really hard to get that call because i felt like we were so close and she'd flown to see us it was after my dad died 
and my dad was an abusive monster alcoholic. And once he was out of the picture, I got to have this great relationship with my stepmom. She flew up um, to Alaska when we lived there. She had a relationship with you guys. She was the one that took over buying you your ornaments. Um, and on his three-year anniversary of my father dying, she committed suicide. And I felt like, how did I miss this? We talked all the time. And then our neighbor um, shot himself in the head and I found him and I was the 911 phone call. And so I have been around my whole life, depression, anxiety, and uh, on the fringes of suicide with people really close to me who have died. And so when you're a person who, whether you've considered suicide or not yourself, once you go through the process of losing somebody you love or that you're close to and you see what that does to everyone left behind, it becomes much more difficult to even want to consider doing that. And I know that we live in a school district. I don't know about your years in high school, Alana, but I know Kezia's years in high school, there was a spike, even junior high school. So it must have been you in high school. Yeah. In so our county, there were there is an unprecedented number of suicides. That was my generation. My seventh grade year, two people committed suicide at O'Brien um, when I was going there attending. My sophomore year, one of my best friends, Carla, committed suicide. Um, and that was when I had called, I had texted you and um, I was letting you know, hey, you know, if my counselor sends me home early, this is why. Um, my junior year in high school, that is when Isabel, who yeah. happened to be my best friend um, in middle school, had committed suicide. And that was really hard for me. And I never really accepted the fact that she did that. Um, even though me and her had both had conversations about that um, as we continued our friendship um, through middle school and high school. Um, and then my senior year, obviously that is a ridiculous amount of people who who ended up doing that it was three there were three four four people not not at Damani alone but in Reno who who I had known who had died or committed suicide yeah. um which was really hard for me and that was that was all in my generation that is all my class um right all the same age as me i knew every single one of them and i think a biggest thing in life is people are put in there for a reason um this all happened after my attempt my freshman year right. so if you look at every single every single year except for eighth grade it goes you know suicide suicide seventh grade my attempt was freshman year and then three three more years after that there were suicides in my life um and obviously you had suicides in your life even before you had kids or i mean during your right. your motherhood or whatever um but i think people are put in your life for a reason um you have kids who i feel like um had to deal with that and went through that for a reason and you're their mom for a reason they were put in your life for a reason um I think you knew the signs and you knew how to take care of that. And that's why you were given the opportunity, I guess not necessarily the opportunity, but you were given that, um, 
that experience to deal with because of the experience that you had and because you knew what you needed to do in order to make it so that we were okay. Um, Law, what about you? I mean, other, what I want to talk about, I agree. I mean, I, I hope I handled everything well in parenting. And I know I have not. And this is a really tough subject as a parent because you're watching your child feeling helpless, knowing that you may lose one and losing a child for a parent. Like I could lose anyone in my life, but losing a child is absolutely the most difficult thing to have to live through. And I, I always felt like the, what would be keeping me holding myself together if I lost a child would be the rest of the kids and losing Christopher taught me that that is true. Um, you guys are the ones that make it so that I don't completely come unglued because I've gone through mm -hmm. losing a child in a different way, like not, not from suicide, just losing a child in general. So law we talked about, I want to wrap up by giving advice um, for people who are feeling this struggle of wanting to make, or they're contemplating suicide, having had, one time I said failed suicide attempts and a, another person got upset at me and I'm like, well, that's what it is. It was an unsuccessful suicide attempt. Thank God, you guys, if you're going to screw something up in your life, thank God it's a suicide attempt, right? Like as a mom, I'm really glad that that's where you failed, um, or weren't successful, but for people out there that are contemplating this or do you want to add to anything first that Kezia just said about people in your lives and what you're surrounded with but I that and you can talk about that and then I want to talk about what what would you suggest to people who are feeling this way so you can wrap up if you want with what Kezia said with the people around you well my first experience of suicide was in elementary school there was a brother and a sister who it was a murder suicide, but that's because the the younger one, the girl, she just she wasn't able to pull the trigger, but she was done living. So they made a murder suicide pact, and they both ended up dying with a gunshot to the head in elementary school. He was in middle school, like seventh grade, I think. And there's I'm pretty sure the mural is still there at Stead um because like they had two very abusive alcoholic parents and it was either die by their own hand or die by theirs mm -hmm. so that was my first experience with suicide and like that didn't plant the seed in my head that didn't get it rolling like that was tragic right. and it happened like when I, before anything was going on with me. I think that happened in third grade. And like, that was very hard for a lot of the older kids at the school and a lot of the teachers who had had both those kids. Right. Because they had no idea. So that, that was my first experience with it. And like, other than that, I didn't really see a lot of suicides. Like I had friends who would talk about it a lot and would joke about it. And I had a lot of friends who cut and had a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on in their head, but none of it 
ever played out. Okay. But. So, like. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. What advice? I want to end on what advice you would give to someone. I mean, I think that's really important having experienced it yourself. I, I have not had a suicide attempt, so I can't tell people from that perspective. What would you tell people who are contemplating this? Find a place where you belong. Find a niche, something to strive for, something that you can always keep working on. If, you, if you've always dreamed about writing a book, make that your goal. Like, what I did is I made a list of things I wanted to experience before I died, whether it was by my hand or someone else's or just nature in general. Like, I made a list of things I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to do, like, something live action. And I've since done a short film. Mm -hmm. And it was actually, the focus of it was suicide, which, like, I didn't write the script, but, like, they cast me as the lead who's preventing their friend from suicide and who's dealt with their own suicide. So I don't know, like, out of all the people why they picked me, but I ended up being a good fit. Doesn't mean I'm the best actor. And that short film showed me that, like, yeah, I can read the script, I can play the part. That doesn't mean I can play it very well. But I've still done that. Mm-hmm. And like now I have all these friends who like are very into film and production and short films and theater and like they also do modeling as well. I did a photo shoot my senior year because that was something I've always wanted to do. And now I have a bunch of bomb photos that I've just sitting on my laptop with no other purpose. Like I like one of my goals is to get married. Like I don't know when that's gonna happen. First I gotta find someone willing to deal with me forever. Luckily, I did, and she actually sent me a text telling me how much she loved me, and I, like, trying to keep my composure, but, like, just make a goal list and find, okay. a, find a place where you belong and you feel like you can keep striving that forces you into a group of friends that you don't necessarily have to get close to, but they're there if you need to. Kaz, what about you? What, what would you recommend for people? Um, for me, it's not necessarily a recommendation. Um, be aware of your surroundings, not only not only of the people around you, but also, you know, of everything that you can appreciate a little bit a little bit closer. Um, the The biggest thing for me is I wasn't aware of the people who cared about me until after the fact. Um, if you succeed, you're not going to see that you're not going to see the after fact. You're not going to see how many people care about you. You have to be aware of who's there and who cares about you and who loves you to, to realize what, what you're actually doing and who you're affecting and what that's going to do to them. Um, so it's not necessarily for me finding something that makes you feel like you know, I, I guess necessarily better for me, it's you need to be aware of what you're doing before you do it. You need to be aware of who you're affecting before you affect them. Because the pain that you have isn't only it's the pain that you have isn't leaving when you die, it's given to other people. And you have to pay attention to who you're giving that to, and how you're affecting them. Because not only is a suicide attempt affecting them, but it can also cause them to do the same thing you did. 
Um, and for me, um, after the fact, I, a lot of my friends joked about why I was gone. Cause obviously I didn't, I didn't have my cell phone or anything like that when I was in West Hills. So a lot of them made jokes like, Oh, you know, we just assumed that you were dead type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was, that was rough going back to school. Um, but after the fact, I kind of noticed, you know, the little smiles people gave me or, you know, the waves or how many people actually noticed that I was gone. Um, I had teachers ask me what was going on because, um, they put in my, um, they put my missing attendance that I was gone for medical reasons. Um, so I had teachers come up to me who were really concerned, friends who were concerned. Um, and even like people I didn't know, um, that made my day just because they smiled at me or waved or anything like that, because you don't notice the finer details until it's actually happened. Um, but if you succeed in something like that, if, if you actually go forward and, die, I guess, um, you don't get to see the aftermath. You don't get to see the effect that you had on other people. So the biggest advice that I could give to someone is to be aware of, of who you're affecting and what you're affecting and to be more aware of the finer details in life. Because if you don't, you're not only screwing yourself over by ending everything, you're also screwing the people over around you you're affecting everyone right and and their world stops not just yours theirs does too right law and with with what kezia said um a lot of people when they're getting to that point where they're ready they start to withdraw from the people that they truly care about and that truly care about them that makes it worse for them because suddenly this person that they're so super close to and like have been best friends or really close siblings or whatever the relationship for x amount of time suddenly just stops talking to you and stops responding and stops being present and then all of a sudden they're just gone completely and that makes it worse yeah because when you you withdraw before your attempt you mean yeah because then you feel like you could have reached out you could have done something but in reality you were reaching out and they just weren't reciprocating. Right. So don't, don't withdraw, embrace, like just. Enjoy your life it. before it's gone. Yeah. Like because you said, notice the small things. Like you won't notice who's gonna miss you. Like it could be the person at the drive-thru that you see every time and who starts recognizing your car and your order and starts drawing on like your cups because they want to make you smile right like that happened to me yesterday right wait a second wait a second everyone at dutch bros knows me so that that's funny that you bring that up because i, like, I had to i literally collect car, every single word so now they up. doodle on my cup so oh, like, that's, that's, that's so the same thing yesterday. they do with me is I'm friends with everyone there because of how often I go to get like, Dutch Bros. Like you don't typically think about those more distant people, but they're going to notice when you stop coming, like especially if you go on a regular basis. Here's something like, that I teach a lot in Compounding Joy with coaching is that we do not know the difference we're making in the life of another human being. And most of the time it's in passing. 
like you're saying, like not somebody you know, like in a, and I use a drive-through as an example. And we don't often take the time to say, dude, when you came on the intercom on the drive-through, you are killing it. But we'll be pissed at the barista if they got our order wrong. And to just take a step back. So my recommendation, not having been a suicide attempt, but for life in general, to notice the people around you and notice the difference you make is to say something when things like that happen. Those little mundane daily peripheral events happen like going through a drive-through and the person's voice comes on and they're awesome because we will make a difference in the life of another human being without ever knowing that we did and in a really short amount of time in passing in the time that it takes you to get through the drive-through window and so you're saying what a difference that makes and the other thing is the science behind smiling um and there was another woman that I talked to uh, that had a suicide attempt. And after her suicide attempt, she decided all she was going to do is smile at people without knowing the science behind it. And the science behind it is that when you smile, it tricks your brain that you're happy. You don't have to be. You can't actually fake it till you make it. But also when you smile, the people that see it, it makes an enormous difference in their life also. So there are a lot of really small things you can do in a bad space that make a big difference. And so we're, that's what we're talking about. So that's, that's kind of funny that you bring up smiling because I do that at work every single time. It, it doesn't matter if I'm having a bad day or not. It was actually really funny because I was talking to one of my friends at work about um, being upset um, and being angry at certain things um, at work. And this server, Joel, he's, he's one of my favorites. He comes up to me, he goes, shut the hell up, Kezia. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you're always happy. I don't know what you're talking about. I never see a frown on your face. I never see you upset, anything like that. And he goes, like, um, you're not allowed to talk about being upset here because you're never upset. And I laugh at him, I laugh at him and I'm like, well, you, you don't see that, but you know, I am sometimes. And he goes, well, you really are making a difference around here and like walks out and I was like well you know that makes Good. me feel a lot better not only yes about other people but about myself yeah because obviously you don't know the difference that you're making in someone's life and obviously um to an extent you don't necessarily try to make a difference um, right the biggest thing after the math was I wanted to make someone feel important in life i did not want to see someone go through the same things that i've been going through mm -hmm. um and i knew the signs because i went through the signs i went through it um so obviously you kind of notice those people in the hallway who with are withdrawn and and don't talk to anyone and keep to themselves and stuff like that i uh during school um when i was going to public school i made it a goal to go out of my way to to say hi to them to smile at them to make conversation with them because of how withdrawn they were from from people and because not a lot of people noticed that but i did because i went through the same thing right um like so I necessarily have to become their best friend, but exactly. smile and say hi because that could that can still make a difference. Absolutely. And I I made it important, and I've I've said this so many times. I've made it important for people to know the littlest things in life can not only make someone's day, but it can also save someone's life. A smile, a wave, a hug, a conversation, anything. The smallest things can save someone's life. Amen. That's a perfect place to end because that's how we all feel. And I thank you girls so much. I'm so proud to be your mom. But also, thank you for being brave enough to talk about 
suicide and be really raw and open about it. I really appreciate you so much. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Talking about it helps. Love you. Love okay. you.